Go ahead this morning and open your Bibles up to Exodus 15. Uh, we're going to actually be looking at a passage starting in Exodus 15:22 and ending in, in chapter 17, verse 7. But, but we'll take a minute before we, we get there. And, and let me start by, by saying this. I, I don't know uh, about you, but I'm not the biggest fan of flying. I have flown, flown on, uh, on many occasions. I have flown both domestically and, and internationally. I will fly, I just don't, I don't really like it. You know, in terms of the takeoff, not the biggest fan, not the biggest fan of the takeoff. The landing is usually a pretty good part because you're coming back to the, the ground. Cruising altitude when everything is as it should be is really a nice, a nice part of the flight. But, but the one thing that I dislike the most is the turbulence. The up and down, the unexpected movements, the sudden drop that will cause you to grab hold of your chair only to realize there's nothing below the chair. And you know when you're flying and that happens, the turbulence is just a reminder you have no control at all. That, that's always the case and yet you're just reminded of that in that moment. I, I really have no control over the situation. And so whether it's a, a bumpy plane ride or difficult, turbulent seasons of life, we often have those times that come up to just remind us we don't have much control over this situation. And it could be, it could be difficulty at, at work. It could be uh, marital strife. It could be broken relationships with children. It could be health concerns. The list the list goes on and on. It's, it's the turbulence in life. It's those unexpected times of difficulty, of hardship that we experience that remind us we just have no, no ultimate control. And that's not just true for us. That's been true for humanity throughout human history. And this morning as we jump into Exodus 15, we're, we're going to look at a, a passage that is, is going to remind us of a situation in which the Israelites had no control over. But before we get to Exodus 15, I, I'd like to remind you, I know you know this, but I want to remind you of a few things that happened in the first 14 and, and beginning of chapter 15, the first chunk of the book of Exodus. So you remember when we, when we come to the outset of the book of Exodus, everything seems to be going really well in the opening verses. The, the people are growing, they're fruitful, they've increased, they're multiplying. You know, it's the language of Genesis chapter 1. It's what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. That's what the Israelites are doing here. And then chapter 1, verse 8, there's a shift in the story. There's a new Pharaoh that comes to power, and, and, it, and it tells us that he, he didn't know Joseph. And more than that, he had no regard for Joseph, which means he has no regard for the descendants of Joseph, nor the God of Joseph. And so he seeks to weaken and destroy the, the people of Israel. He views them as a threat, and, and he first seeks to weaken and crush them by enslaving them, putting them under harsh taskmasters, afflicting them with brutal service. But the more they were oppressed, the text says, the more they multiplied. And so then he went to the, the midwives who worked with the Israelite women and said, if, if, if the women have a, a girl, you let her live, and if they have a boy, you, you kill him. 
And we're told in Exodus 1 that the, the midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, and so they, they didn't listen to his command. And by the end of chapter 1, he just gives a green light to everybody in Egypt. If you find a young Israelite boy, you just throw him in the Nile yourself. And it's, it's the very means that Pharaoh used to attempt to destroy the people that God uses to save the people. It's in the Nile in Exodus chapter 2 that God preserves a, a special individual, one that would be set apart, Moses himself, that God would use to, to free the people of Israel from their Egyptian bondage. And you know the, the narrative around Moses there. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. He, he, he comes up in Pharaoh's own, own house, and at the age of 40, he goes out and, and sees an Israelite being, being struck and beaten by a by an Egyptian being afflicted, and, and he attempts to really overstep himself. And he reaches out and, and ends the life of that Egyptian, and he flees to Midian for 40 years. And it's, it, you know, it looks like the story of Moses is kind of lost in this desert. And he's out there shepherding for 40 years. And then at, at age 80, God meets with Moses at the burning bush. And you remember he... He draws Moses to the bush and he says, don't come near, take your shoes off the place on which you stand. is holy ground. And, and it's in Exodus 3 and following that God makes clear to Moses, here's what I want you to do. And Moses just makes clear, I want no part of that. He gives a, a multitude of excuses and reasons as to why he is not fit for the job. And, and God is persistent. You're the one who's going to do the job. And so in chapter 5, in one of the most important verses in the book, Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh with the message that God has given them, hey, you're going you're gonna to let these people go. And Pharaoh, in Exodus 5, verse 2, says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I, I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. You know, Pharaoh viewed himself as a... A deity. The Egyptians worshipped a whole host of false gods. Who, who, who is this God? As if he has power over me, I'm not going to listen to him. And it's two chapters later in Exodus 7, verse 5, that God gives the answer to that when he says, I'm going to show everybody in Egypt exactly who I am. And it's in the ten plagues that follow that God demonstrates his power, his superiority to all the false gods that ruled and reigned in Egypt. It's in the ten plagues, the multitude of, of flies and gnats and the death of the livestock and darkness and all these things that took place that God reveals, I'm the one who has total control. And it's after the tenth and final plague that Pharaoh says to Moses and by extension to the rest of Israel, it's time for you to go. It's after the death of the firstborn that he says, now, now you, you, you've got to leave, you've got to get out of here. And so the Israelites begin to do just that. And then in the hardness of his own heart, Pharaoh's not satisfied with that. He's going to pursue them once again. And you remember at the start of Exodus 14, they, they've made their way out, so to speak. And they have one final, one final stretch to, to go. And in a kind of puzzling turn of events at the start of Exodus 14, and Pastor Jack preached on this, you know, maybe a month and a half ago or so. He tells them, he tells the people to kind of turn around and camp. 
and they've got the Red Sea at their back, and they've got kind of desert all around, and then all of a sudden they see off in the distance the world's most powerful army coming towards them. And they are convinced that death is the only outcome, right? Why'd you bring us out here just to kill us? And that's when Moses says to them, you know, you need to be quiet and watch what God's going to do. And that's when the Red Sea is parted and the Israelites walk through on dry ground. And, and, and that same Egyptian army pursues them. And God causes that ground that was dry to become wet again. It clogs their chariot wheels. They're stuck. And, and we read the words of some of the Egyptian soldiers in Exodus 14 saying, you know, we've got to get out of here. He fights, he fights against us, right? God fights against us. There's a God on their side who's against us. We have no hope. And at the end of Exodus 14, the, the bodies of the Egyptian soldiers are washing up on the, the shore. And that really produces, in the first part of Exodus 15, the song that the Israelites sang, a song of praise, a song of worship, really extolling God for who he is and all that he does. One of the most famous verses in that section is Exodus 15:11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And, and, and the obvious answer to the passage is no one's like him. Right? There, there is no one like the Lord. Now that brings us to our, our text we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at God's people as they begin to make their way through the wilderness. You remember at this point, they're going to end up at Mount Sinai in chapter 19, where God's going to give them the law, the commandments, but they're not there yet. They're, they're, they're at an in-between stage here. They've left Egypt. They've been pulled out of that. They've been delivered and redeemed and saved, and yet they are not yet where they are going to be. And so we're going to look this morning at, at them in the wilderness. We're going to make some observations, and then we're going to turn briefly at the end to the New Testament and make some observations about Jesus in the wilderness. So previously, in the first 14, 15 chapters, the book of Exodus shows us the miraculous deliverance, the redemption that God provides for his people. And now we turn our attention to their, their time again in the wilderness. Previously, their salvation now... God's going to begin that sanctifying work in them. And so what begins here in this passage is, is really what I would argue is, is kind of the Christian life. We, we've been delivered. We've been redeemed. We're not yet where we are going. We haven't reached the destination yet. And so I, I would argue all of the Christian life is lived in the wilderness, so to speak. It's the land of tests. It's where circumstances and situations change. And, and we'll see this morning, although the particulars are evolving all the time, the test really remains the same. And so I, I think we see in this passage the Israelites have entered a, a school of tests, a university in the wilderness. The first test that we see at the end of chapter 15, those final verses of chapter 15, is this. Will you trust me? That's test number one. Will you trust me? Let me read and you follow along with me in chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. Here's what we read. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea 
And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they, they couldn't drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log. He threw it into the water. The water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you'll diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. And then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So test number one, again, will you trust me? They, they have journeyed out into the wilderness. They've left the Red Sea, a three days journey, and they have no water. And they're quick to complain, quick to grumble. Now, lest we be quick to judge, this is a serious problem. You know, they're in the midst of the wilderness. This is not... This is not the great outdoors. This is not a scenic trip with breathtaking views. They're in the middle of a desert. And they have no water, and that's a big problem. They've got lots of people. They've got animals. They're in desperate need. The the need was real. The response is wrong. They they come upon a source of water, and, and yet they can't drink it. And so instead of trusting God, they grumble. They complain. They doubt. You know, they, they need to at this moment remember all that God has just done for them. They're a three days journey from the Red Sea. Three days ago, they saw the world's most powerful army charging toward them and destroyed in front of them. Now they have no water. God, seriously? No water, right? You know, that, that's, that's the problem here. And so I think we should consider as we look at this passage, what's our first response to difficulty? What's our, what's our initial response? Because the way they act, they, they function like atheists, right? They, they believe that there's a God. They complain and grumble to that God. But they act like he's not real. They live like he, he has no power. They live certainly like he doesn't care. So they grumble, they complain, they doubt. Moses makes a request to the Lord, and the Lord is so gracious to provide. Just as he had done so many times. Again, they they need to remember the deliverance from harsh service, from an evil tyrant. They need to remember the power of God on display in the ten plagues. They need to remember the, the beauty and the sobering reality of the Passover that all deserve to die, and yet God graciously spared them on the basis of a sacrifice. They need to remember the Red Sea, and yet all they can focus on is the present problem. And you see, it's here that, that we're reminded of a really important reality we must remember the past work of God in order to cultivate a spirit of trust in the present. If we forget the past work of God, we will never have faith in the present. How quickly they forgot and how quickly we can be prone to forget too. We can, we can be so fast to doubt and to grumble. We can be so quick to develop a type of 
tunnel vision on our current situation, right? It becomes our entire world. The present problem becomes the only thing I see. And yet if I could take a step back and and maintain some perspective, I, I would remember all these things that God has done for me. I should trust him in the present too. And, and obviously this is not our text, but you remember in the book of Joshua, when Joshua brought the people across the, the uh, Jordan River in Joshua chapter 3, the, the thing they did in Joshua 4 to remember, what they do? They set up stones, right? They set up memorial stones. They set up 12 stones so that when they looked at that, we're going to remember this is what God had done for us, right? And so we would do well to, to do something so that we might remember the past work of God. Certainly here, they should remember the fact that God had just previously delivered them and redeemed them in the most miraculous way. And if you trust in Christ, he's done the same for you. And in addition to that, he has cared for so many problems, right? There are so many issues that have come up. Boy, how is this going to work itself out? And what's going to be the solution to this problem? And yet God has graciously provided. And if we're going to have faith in the present, we need to be quick to remember the past work of God. And God doesn't just provide, but, but he graciously speaks to them. Look at verse 26. Again, he says, if you'll diligently listen, if you'll commit yourself, diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give here to his commandments and keep all his statutes, then I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. What a beautiful description of God here. You know, that they know him as the I am. That's how he revealed himself in Exodus chapter 3, the I am. They know him as deliverer. They know him as redeemer. They know him as a, a powerful sovereign. But now he says, I'm your healer. And this he, he proves by providing an oasis of refreshment for them with an abundance of fresh water and shade from the scorching sun. What happens at the end of these verses here is the kind mercy of God, providing refreshment for his people before they continue in their wilderness journey. The, the test, will you trust me? They're so quick to doubt. They're so prone to complain. And if we're often, we, we, we can, if we're honest with ourselves, rather, we, we find ourselves often doing the same type of things. And yet the passage doesn't stop there, and the tests don't stop there. There is a second test, and it's going to sound very familiar to the first test. Again, will you trust me? Will you trust me? That was test number one. It's test number two. And this test we find in chapter 16. Let's look at the opening few verses. Again, test number two, will you trust me? They set out from Elam. Again, in verse 27, that's where they experienced that oasis of refreshment. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly 
with hunger. Now, you know, that's not exactly how it happened in Egypt, correct? You know, this is, uh, you know, they're remembering some things a little bit differently. Back in chapter 2, they cried out under their affliction. Now, we just had meat pots and we ate bread to the full and it was a great time back in Egypt. Would have been so much better for us to die there than to be saved and, and continue now. And, and, and the spirit of grumbling be, becomes this characteristic trait of the people. And this same spirit of grumbling is going to continue in our passage, but it also continues later on in the book of Numbers as they're wandering in the wilderness. They, they continue to complain. You know, here in the book of Exodus, they, they grumbled under Pharaoh in chapter 2. They grumbled at the Red Sea in chapter 14. They grumbled previously in chapter 15 at Marah. Here they grumble against their leaders. According to chapter 16, verse 8, ultimately all their grumbling is against God. And yet just as God graciously provided water for them previously, they grumble again, and yet God again responds in kindness and mercy. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they'll walk in my law or not. God responds in mercy. I'm going to rain bread from heaven. You know, let's make a few observations here about the, the provision of God. Number one, it was miraculous. It's a miraculous provision that God offers to his people. Look with me particularly at verses 11 through 15. The Lord said to Moses, I've, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew, uh, excuse me, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, "What is it?" For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, "It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat." This. This provision is miraculous. They didn't work for it. The Lord just provided it. And, and this would go on for years. Psalm tw uh, 78 verse 25 calls this the bread of angels. Psalm 78 verse 27 says that he, he rained meat on them like dust and winged birds like the sand of the seas. And while God doesn't provide food for us in the exact same way, it doesn't mean that his provision for us is any less miraculous. It doesn't mean that his provision for us is any less extraordinary. What they should do moving forward is remember and be thankful. That's exactly what we should do too. We should be quick to remember the provision of God the kindness of God, the mercy of God, and respond appropriately with appreciation and gratitude. So first, the, the provision of God for them was miraculous, but, but second, it, it cared for their daily needs. 
in, in providing for them. He cared for their daily needs. Each day God provided for that day. No more, no less. Look starting in verse 16 of chapter 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. God wanted them to, to trust him each and every day for provision and for care. Each morning they were to be humbly dependent upon the Lord. Each day they were to have a content spirit of gratitude, not a discontent spirit of grumbling. And he even provides for them a, a day each of the week, a Sabbath day of rest. So on the sixth day they were to gather two days worth of food. And, and only then... Would it last? Look at verses 22 and following. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you'll not find in it, excuse me, you'll not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. And yet they still failed to trust God. Verse 27 says, On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Time and time again, they, they continue to fail to trust God. They, they attempt to take the situation and the circumstance and the problems into their own hands. I'm going to be the one to find the solution. I'm going to be the one to work this out. Yeah, God, I know that you've, you've prescribed that I do this, but that doesn't make the best sense to me. I, I think if I was in control, I could run this a little better than, than you could. And we have to be quick to remember God's daily, continual, ongoing mercy and provision that he shows to us is sufficient for the day. His mercies are, are new every morning, and we should rest in that. He, he doesn't give us mercy for tomorrow's problems today. He gives you mercy for today's problems today. And... and when his people are content and satisfied with him, then God is most honored. He's most glorified. But every expression of grumbling and complaining and discontentment, it's, it's us shaking our fist at God. Why would you do that? 
you know, God, how could you be so foolish to, to, to tell me to do this? This seems so much better. I'm going to go my own way. And yet every time in the Bible people go their own way, it never works out well. But the provision of God was not just miraculous and it didn't just care for their daily needs. It was also to be a holy reminder. The, the daily provision was also to be a holy reminder. This is what we see in the final verses of chapter 16. Look with me, starting at verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And then verse 36, and Omer is the tenth part of an ephah, if that clears it up for you, obviously. Just in case you were confused, that should help. You look down at the bottom of your page, you may have a comment that an ephah was about three-fifths of a bushel. So if the other comment didn't help, that should... That should help too. You know, they, they were to always remember the way that God had provided for them, both in saving them and in caring for their daily needs. You know, God desires his people to, to remember, and, and we are instructed time and time again to remember because we are so prone to forget. We suffer from a, a terrible condition, a type of spiritual amnesia. We are so prone to forget the work of God. And, and so do something, as I said earlier, to, to aid your mind in remembering the work of God. Write, write down answered prayers. Write down current problems that you, you cannot see a solution to. And when God provides the solution, write that down. Look back at that in times of difficulty. Be reminded of the provision of God, the blessing of God, the kindness of God. And even in this life, if you feel like he has solved none of your problems, if you've trusted in Christ, he has solved your greatest problem. And that should be enough. And so in terms of the observations about the provision of God, again, it was miraculous. It cared for their needs. It was a holy reminder. Finally, it was to have a sanctifying effect. It was to have a sanctifying effect. And that we actually see in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 3, excuse me, verses 2 and 3. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. In reference to our passage in Exodus 16, the same author, Moses, here's what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what's in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes 
from the mouth of the Lord. You know, the Lord was not simply feeding them. He was shepherding them. His primary concern was not their stomachs. It was their hearts. And he wants his people to fully trust his word. Surely this is where we need to run daily for nourishment. We need to run fast to the, the truth of God's word that we might find a spiritual nourishment for our souls. But that brings us to the third and final test here. Test number one was, will you trust me? Test number two was, will you trust me? Bonus points that don't really matter for anybody who can guess test number three. (laughs) Will you trust me? Will you trust me? And this is found in the first seven verses of chapter 17. Here's what we read. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. The people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So their journey continues, and again they are without water, and again they grumble instead of trusting. Instead of looking to the Lord and seeking him, they quarrel against Moses, and according to verse 4, they're ready to kill him, and all of this again is ultimately against God himself. What what a statement there at the end of verse 7, is the Lord even among us or not? So we should just note a couple of things here. First, they demand God provide for them. Look at verse 2. They demand it. People quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. We do this sometimes when we expect God to work on our timetables. When we refuse to patiently wait for him to, to do what he pleases when he pleases. They don't just demand he provide for them. They also accuse God of, of not really not caring, not protecting them. Look at verse 3. People thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You just want to kill us. Do we do this sometimes? Do we sometimes accuse God of intending to harm us, thinking he doesn't have our best interest at heart? Maybe in terms of our job or family or money or health. Do do we doubt that he has our best at heart? Do we forget that he's working all things for our good if we've trusted in him? 
you know, there are some helpful verses here in Romans chapter 8, and I'm I'm not referring to Romans 8.28, which tells us that he's working all things for our good, but a couple of verses that follow that, Romans 8.31 and 32, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And certainly at this point in Exodus, there's not, there's not an observer who could say that God was not for this people. All that he had done for them. And all he's done for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, we as the people of God need to remember the great exodus that he's worked on our behalf, right? He brought us up out of slavery. He freed us from bondage. He's redeemed us. Why would we doubt his deliverance in lesser matters? And in comparison, everything else is a lesser matter. And that's not to say at all, nor am I suggesting that the problems of life aren't real or pressing or difficult. They are but they don't compare it to the greatest problem that has been solved if you've trusted in Jesus. And so in addition to demanding God provide and accusing him of not caring, they also totally doubt that he's with them. Again, in verse 7, we just read, is God even, is God even among us or not? Is he with us? Does he care? He promised to be with them. They don't believe it. And, and, and the same thing can be true for us far too often. When tough times hit, we can, we can think, has God really abandoned me? Does he not see this? Does he not care? And yet nothing could be further from the truth. You see, even in the midst of all these tests, the no water, no food, no water, and they were real problems. They were. Israel's primary problem is our problem. It's not a lack of food or water. It is a lack of faith. That's the problem. And we have to remember what, what Charles Spurgeon once said, and Steve has quoted this many times from the pulpit, when you cannot trace the hand of God, you can trust the heart of God. When you cannot imagine how God might be working, you can trust the character of God. When you cannot imagine how God's going to work this present problem and bring it to a solution, you can look at his track record and you can trust his heart. And so God simply desires that his people believe him and trust him and rest in him. Instead of gratitude, far often, far too often it's just grumbling. And instead of crying out to God and and Praying to him, it's, it's complaints against God. And Israel fails all throughout this, and you and I have failed time and time again, and yet there was one who came and never failed, and that's Jesus himself. And, and Jesus went through a period in the wilderness, very similar to Israel, and he faced a few tests, and he passed those tests. Let's look briefly at Matthew chapter 4. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 4. And let's note how Jesus 
responds to the temptations, the tests that take place in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, in verse 3, Jesus is tested. We read, the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And in verse 4, Jesus trusts the word of God. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in verses 5 and 6, again, he's tempted. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And again in verse 7, Jesus trusts the word of God. Jesus said again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally in verses 8 and 9, again he's tempted. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, all these I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me. And again in verse 10, Jesus trusts the word of God. He said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, the, the, the point of this passage in Matthew 4, I do not think the point of the passage is that we should memorize our Bibles, although we should. The point is, Jesus is the one, the perfect one, who, when presented the opportunity to fail, to fall, when tempted, did not. He, he's the victorious one. He's the one we trust. We should, now, we should learn from that, too. We should memorize our Bibles. We should respond to the tests of life with great faith. And yet, the point of the passage, the primary point of the passage, is that Jesus is the one we look to. He's not just the one we learn from. He's the one we look to. And in terms of, of our passage in Exodus, you know, not only does Jesus pass the test that Israel failed, that you and I have failed, you know, he, he's the bread of life. You know, God, God rained down bread from heaven. He gave them miraculous food. And yet, according to John 6, Jesus is the bread of life. You, you remember the extraordinary miracle of Jesus providing food for thousands. He's the bread of life. He, he alone satisfies. He alone provides true sustenance. And in that final test in chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, you remember God told Moses to take his staff and strike the rock and water would come forth for the people. And we should note that, that Jesus is the ultimate rock who was struck on our behalf. You know, the picture of, of water from the rock in Exodus 17 <clears throat> You know, that comes up again and again and again in the Bible's story. This, this flowing source of water. In Genesis chapter 2, there's a, a spring that is flowing water in Eden. In Ezekiel 47, there's water pouring forth from the temple. In Revelation 22, there's a river of life. In the new heavens and the, the new earth, it flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. And all of this points to the fact and is made possible because of the person and work of, of Jesus. He, he's the living water. He's the one who provides refreshment. He, he's the one who provides 
life. You remember Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And he makes clear to her, I'm the living water. It, it comes from him. He, he's the rock who was struck. He's, he's the one who was crushed on our behalf. He's the one from whom flows the fullness of life. You know, Moses struck the rock when the people deserved to be struck. And the Father has struck the Son when we deserve to be struck. And so if that's true for you, if you've trusted in Jesus and he has taken what you deserve, then, then there should be great encouragement in the midst of life's present problems. And when you find yourself in the midst of the wilderness, so to speak, those desert periods where it looks like there's no solution to whatever pressing issue and problem might arise, what's, what's the response? What's the initial response? Grumbling? Or, or is it, again, a spirit of gratitude? Is it a, a, a regular pattern of, of complaining? Or do you cry out to the Lord? Do you doubt or do you depend upon Him? Because we should be people who are quick to trust God for our ongoing provision because He has already cared for our deepest need. This is really what the Israelites missed here in Exodus 15 through 17. It's what we don't want to miss. They were so quick to forget the extraordinary things that God had done for them. And they were so quick to neglect the extraordinary promises God had made to them that they failed to trust God in the present. And we don't want to do that. We are, we are robbed of, of peace and comfort in the midst of the pressing problems when all we do is worry and become anxious and are filled with concerns. And we rob God of the glory that he's due because we say to him, you can't solve this problem. You're just not strong enough. You're not big enough, right? Sure, you've ransomed my soul from an eternal hell, but you can't deal with this present, present problem. And that is something that we would never utter out loud. And yet we can live like that sometimes. And so I hope you'll provide, I hope this text will provide you with comfort and encouragement and good reminders, things you know, nothing new, just reminders to remember the work of God, to look, to be quick to look at the past work of God that you might be strengthened in the present to trust and follow Him. So with that said, let's pray. Lord, would you help us in the midst of our daily lives? with problems that press in and issues we have to deal with and maybe they may be relational problems lord with family members they may be issues at work they may be financial concerns they may be health problems and lord none of those none of those problems are ancillary lord they 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 are not meaningless they're real they're real and so lord we we are not we are not saying that those problems should be simply erased from our mind. We should not be thinking about them at all. Lord, they're, they're real problems, and yet we have a God, we serve a God who has conquered our greatest problem and, and has promised us an eternal home 
where all the problems are solved forever. So as we walk the wilderness road of life and we encounter the issues of this present world, Lord, would you help us to be people who have an eye lifted up to heaven? Lord, would you help us to set our minds on the things that are above that we might find strength and comfort in in the pressing problems of life, Lord, would you help us to be quick to remember the work you've done on our behalf, the extraordinary work we did not deserve, we could do nothing to earn. If we've trusted in Jesus, Lord, you've solved our greatest problem. We thank you for that. We pray that you'd help us to be people who look to you, Lord, that you might be honored, that you might be praised, that you might be glorified. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.